listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. President Donald Trump's first ever budget proposal would eliminate federal funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. CPB gives financial support to public radio stations like WDET and public television stations like Detroit Public Television. It's a significant portion of any station's budget. Here at WDET, it's about 8% of what we use to operate every year and an even larger portion of our programming budget. But for smaller public radio and public TV stations, it could be the difference between being able to broadcast and having to go off the air entirely. Some of those stations are the only source of local news, especially when you're out in rural areas of the country. A recent viral video shows a sad Elmo from Sesame Street being told he's going to be fired. Paula Kerger is the president and CEO of PBS. She was in town recently and told Detroit Today producer Laura Weber Davis that public media is different in a broad media landscape for many people because it feels so personal. So I think the thing that's been very interesting to me, and I should say not surprising, is that the public actually believes they own public media, which they do. They own PBS, they own NPR, they own our stations, that's why they exist. And so um, every time uh, we have had any threat to funding, it's people have risen up and let their voices be heard. But with the tools that are available now through social media and so forth, um, it has been striking to see what people have done. So there's a viral Elmo video that people, I think some people think we did because they put a tag with our name at the end of it. It wasn't ours. We didn't do it. We had nothing to do with it. Actually, if you click on the tag, it doesn't actually take you anywhere. But um, I think, uh, you know, we've seen uh, cartoons. We've seen memes. We've seen all kinds of material out there. And in fact, um, last week I got a call from an organization and said, you know, we've got 660,000 names on a petition. We're going to bring it up to Capitol Hill. Just thought you should know. I had no idea that they were out doing it. And to me, it just really describes who we are in public media because we are in fact the public. It seems like every time we go through a budget cycle, especially when we have um, Republican leadership, there is this conversation that comes back up that there will be a threat to the, the funding for CPB. And I'm just wondering what you know the most up to date. Now that we've seen the, the Trump budget proposal, are you hearing also that lawmakers at the Capitol are interested in pursuing that cut? Or what is sort of the most up to date thing that we have there? So um, we and I, by we, I mean, um, you know, PBS, but more specifically our stations, um, many of our station managers and the and the volunteers attached to them have been in touch with legislators. And, you know, a lot of them have said, look, you know, this is going to go through the process uh, in the House and Senate. I think we've heard that we have very strong champions. Tom Cole, who is the chair of the Labor HHS Subcommittee, which our funding comes through, has said, you know, is a big proponent of public broadcasting and has been uh, very positive. Um, you know, on the Senate side, uh, Thad Cochran, his father actually put Mississippi Public Television on the air, has been a very long diehard champion. So I think when this whole debate moves to the House and Senate, I, I think we're feeling um, hopeful. Uh, but we also are not counting on the fact that we know exactly how this is going to play out. 
So I think that it really is a moment, you know, for people who have opinions about the future of funding for public television, public radio, they have an opportunity, and that's to let their legislators know how they feel. You know, they can call and, 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 and email, and people are, are clearly doing that. Is there a greater threat now than there has been in the past, or does it just feel sort of frenetic because everybody's sort of running around with their hair on fire about a lot of issues that it just feels more urgent? I, I think, you know, look, we are mentioned in the skinny budget. So um, the fact that, um, you know, anytime there is a new administration coming in in the White House, they do put together this sort of skinny down budget because they don't have time to actually put a full budget together. They're not fully staffed up yet. Uh, and But the fact that, you know, there are organizations that were mentioned and those that weren't, the fact that we're in it um, obviously has gotten our attention. Uh, I think that it's just unclear how this budget cycle is going to roll through. There's a lot of big issues that are on the table in Washington, everything from Supreme Court nomination considerations to health care. Um, and the budget, uh, although after the budget was announced, there was just a lot of discussion, has seemed to have taken a back burner to some of those other discussions. So I think it's really unclear how this entire process will go through, and um, which I think is part of what makes this just an unusual time, because I, I think there is no real clear indicator other than we know that there are certain dates where um, you know, clearly there's going to have to be some decisions whether there ends up being a continuing resolution for this year and they don't end up going through actual, you know, budget hearings or not. None of that has been set yet. So it's, people ask me, so when will you know the outcome of this? And it's, you know, it's possible this will go on until the summer. I know in public radio, we talk a lot about the stations that would be most affected were funding cut drastically from the federal government. The stations that would be most affected would be the smaller stations in rural areas that serve predominantly Republican populations. And so maybe the threat isn't as great to, to the funding as, as one would think because they serve communities that have uh, Republican leadership. Is that the case as well for PBS, that the stations that could be most affected would be stations that are representing more red states or rural areas? Or how, how does that play out on the television spectrum? On the television side, it's similar to public radio in that the stations who are the most vulnerable uh, to these budget cuts are the ones that rely heaviest on the federal appropriation, and those are ones uh, serving small communities, and particularly rural communities, because there isn't the economic base uh, of philanthropic support that would make up that gap. And I would say that what has always turned the tide uh, whenever there have been questions, and I think it's it's always appropriate to question where our federal investments should be made, but every time the issues of public media have come up, it's really been people in communities that have talked to their uh, legislators to say, you know, look, this is a valued part of our community. On the, radio, on the television side, the thing is people always ask, well, if these cuts stick, what will you do? And the reality is, you know, we could potentially, um, you know, find service in parts of the country, potentially using cable, but that's not necessarily a done thing. Uh, but a lot of people do rely on over-the-air television. Uh, actually, people are always surprised about that. They, they assume that you have to have cable to watch television. It's not true. Anywhere in the country, if you have an antenna, you can watch over-the-air television, actually get quite a few channels because you, most of the uh, broadcasters are actually broadcasting multiple channels as we are. We have a 24-hour children's channel we broadcast alongside our um, 
our core channels, and uh, those we could not replace. If those stations go under, it's gone. You know, we can't replace an over-the-air broadcast. What does the future look like for PBS at large um, moving into the future where we see lots of people my age and younger getting rid of, cutting the cord, if you will, getting rid of their cable packages? Um, Does it look more like partnerships with HBO and things like that to keep some programming alive? What are some of the discussions happening, um, thinking about 20, 30 years out into the future? 20, 30 years out, wow. Um, You know, I'm right now focused on just the next couple years. I I think that um, a few things. One, um, there are people that are cutting the cord and actually going back to broadcast television. They're actually realizing that there's a lot of stuff that you can see for free. Uh, we are also streaming content, and so our children's channel is available free of charge through broadcast, but it's also available streamed. So if you have a tablet or smartphone, you can watch it all free. Uh, and we do have relationships with content partners where we've also, um, you know, distribute content through places like Netflix and Amazon, which actually helps us to raise some money that goes into the production of the programs themselves. So um, I think the answer of what does the future look like is uh, an expansion of what we've been doing, which is we want to be where our viewers are. And if people want to watch us on television or through cable or satellite, we're there. If people want to watch us in a streamed version, we want to be there. And if people want to watch us through some of these alternative services, then we want to be able to have content there as well. And I think how this continues to evolve in the future, I I don't know. There's lots of discussions about the skinny bundles. We're not in them yet, but obviously we're in conversations with providers about what that could look like. Um, I think what I do know is that there is a very deep commitment to making sure that we're producing content that is... Um, educational as well as entertaining and I think if that as long as that remains our guide star I think the method of how it's distributed is um, is is important obviously but isn't what actually will change the way of what we're defined I think we're defined by the by the quality and the substance of the work and that will continue so that's the part I can imagine 20 30 years out because I think we still will have that same commitment how it how the viewer actually experiences it may shift right we're also sort of in a goal golden age of television, if you will, too. People want to binge watch television. I know I do. In a way that I didn't before and maybe less so interested in going to the movies. And television is now filling a gap, an entertainment gap, that maybe people thought television was going to die in the future. But it seems like there's these great opportunities. How is PBS sort of moving into that in a way that maybe Netflix has or Amazon has? What have the, how have the goalposts moved Maybe not from mission, but from uh, way the way that entertainment is packaged. Well, the way that it's packaged has been the most profound change because people's um, habits have shifted. You know, there are people that want to binge through an entire series. So a couple of years ago, Ken did a series, Ken Burns did a series on the Roosevelts, and we talked him into allowing us to experiment with the way that we were distributing it. So obviously we broadcast it over multiple nights, but we also gave people the opportunity to, after the first night's broadcast, we put all of it up online and people could binge through it. And, and there were people that in the first 24 hours actually binged through, I'm trying to remember how long Roosevelt's were, I want to say eight hours, they went through the whole thing. There was like 20,000 people that did that. But most people used it as a way to catch up. 
you know, so they would watch maybe a couple episodes bound together um, or they hadn't heard about the series and they were in the office and people started talking about it. So they went back, oh, I want to see what that looks like. And they, they started to binge watch some of it. And then they started watching it on broadcast. You know, Downton Abbey was a great example with that. You know, there were people that wanted to binge. There were also a lot of people that went to great lengths to be home on Sunday night to watch it because they wanted to be able to talk about it the next day. So I think the interesting thing for us is we want to make sure that content is available for the for the people that really want to, you know, control their viewing experience and, you know, either want to bundle it all together and watch it all at once or maybe watch it in bigger clumps. Or there are also people that, you know, just want to come home at night, turn on the television set and let us t- and let us guide you through what we have that night. And we, I think the challenge for those of us in this business is that we have to be prepared to do both. And people have a hard time getting their head around that. It's like they feel like, well, maybe we do need to be one or the other. But but I think for us to really do our work, we need to figure out how to do both. And does the mission change at all through that? Or do you sort of have a, a single focus as far as the the uh, the pinpoint of light off in the distance that you're making sure you're always keeping focused on that? Or do you allow yourselves to potentially um, move that point of light if it needs to be moved to fit the changing times? I think, it, I think that the, um, the focus on the quality of the content cannot move. Now, that's not to say that we don't think about the way that the content is put together in very different ways. You know, Rainey Aronson, who's executive producer of Frontline, has been experimenting with virtual reality, for example. And so uh, she did a piece on Syria, and some of it was shot in VR. And you just had a very different, it's a very empathetic media. And so, um, you know, I've seen uh, footage shot of someone uh, scuba diving, and you have a very different impression if you're able to actually literally immerse yourself, no pun intended, in in that experience. And so I think that, you know, that's a technology that the storytelling is different. It's not an hour-long piece shot in VR. It's usually s- shorter pieces. Uh, we've been doing work for YouTube uh, as part of an effort to reach younger people. And by younger, I actually mean older kids, you know. So we have a, a lot of kids that are under the age of eight that watch us. But there are a lot of older kids that I hear from parents constantly, can't you produce anything for our kids? And we decided we would take that up and it really the space to do that is YouTube. And that looks very different than something we would produce for television. Um, it's shorter format. It is more interactive. It has a different pacing to it. And, you know, I would say probably 99% of it would never show up on television in any format. But, um, but it works great for YouTube. So that looks very different than what we've historically done. But the principles of what we're trying to accomplish with that contact, that's the same. And that's the thing that if in terms of looking at that pinpoint of light, you don't want to deviate from. You don't want to start to say, well, maybe it doesn't have to be quite as educational. We'll just make it entertaining and sort of, you know, I, I think that's where you start a slippery slope. I guess my last question would be about the the way that PBS plays a, a role in providing news uh, and information in that regard. I know for a lot of journalists, especially public media journalists, uh, the loss of Gwen Eiffel was huge. Um, what is PBS's role in cultivating a new generation of journalists and from a decidedly public media uh, approach in covering the news, especially when you're competing against the 24-hour news cycle right. channels? Right. So I think, you know, this is where we are different than radio in that um, I think, you know, if you look at our principal 
work in the news space. So you have a series like Frontline, which is investigative journalism, which I think is I extraordinary. And we continue to invest well in that because that is a gap in the marketplace. I mean, there's, you know, there's really, you know, 60 minutes and that's about it in terms of television. Um, in terms of the nightly news, um, I think the news hour is not the place you go for breaking news. I think you would, I would send people to NPR for that. Uh, but I think that um, if you want to put the news in context, it's a good, it's a good um, service that we provide. And uh, we have a new executive producer of NewsHour that joined a couple years ago, Sarah Just, who has been working very hard at keeping what has been the core of the NewsHour, but also looking for new voices and uh, really trying to explore ways to bring new journalists into the public television side of the house. I think radio has done that extremely well. And uh, the loss of Gwen Ifill was quite profound. Uh, I, I I was waiting for you to ask who's going to replace her, but they're really wrestling very hard with that decision because she was such an amazing and singular talent uh, from her background starting in print journalism to her deep knowledge of Washington uh, to her just intellectual capabilities to her service as a managing editor of that newsroom. So um, I, I'm hoping that... Uh, that question will be resolved soon, but they have taken their time and we have encouraged them to take their time and really think about who the right person to occupy that seat. Judy has done a tremendous job on her own and she's had the support of people like Hari Srivanasan who has filled in in the, in the gaps. Uh, but I think it's, it's profoundly important for us to find someone that can help us um, really do what I think is the important job is just move beyond the soundbite and really put the news each day into into a context so that we can understand the just the complicated landscape that we live in now. Well, just for my perspective, how much would the individual taxpayer uh, be saving if funding was cut for the CPB that goes toward PBS? So the uh, the uh, amount that an individual taxpayer pays for CPB is a dollar thirty five per person per year. So, um, you know, really about the cost of a cup of coffee, actually not a cup of coffee at Starbucks, I would add, uh, is, the, is what the taxpayer contributes that creates everything that we do. And we leverage off of that many times. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, that was PBS President and CEO Paula Kerger speaking with Detroit Today producer Laura Weber-Davis recently about the future of public media. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, WDET host and founder of Access, Ishmael Ahmed. We'll talk to him about the history of discrimination against Arab Americans and Muslims in America right here in Metro Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today.